With COVID, it's really about health and safety, right? With all the climate change conversations that's happening, fires and floods. With the politics we have today about Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and people of color, mm-hmm. immigration. Mm-hmm. These are things that we always cared about as a company, mm-hmm. right? Right after tastes and convenience and and whatnot. And suddenly, these factors are driving consumer to care more about our brand. Min Tsai started Hodo Foods during an artisanal renaissance for the Bay Area food scene. It was a time when craftsmanship was more important than national scale, when ingredient quality and environmental stewardship and creating good jobs were par for the course, when profitability was, frankly, the only option. Now, all of those choices are paying off in a big way. In this episode of Brand New Blueprint, Men shares his journey from Vietnamese refugee to seeing his company's tofu on hundreds of menus from Michelin star restaurants to Chipotle. If you want additional tools to apply what you learn in this episode, just text the word blueprint to 66866. It's an easy way to give us your email address. Welcome to the second season of Brand New Blueprint, a podcast by Smoketown. I'm your host, Ryan Pintado-Vertner. This podcast is all about finding new ways to build brands that can change the world. We hear directly from founders and CEOs, and we don't wait until they're already successful and worth zillions of dollars. We hear from them right now while the paint on the blueprint is still wet. And who is Smoketown? Smoketown is a boutique consultancy that improves the growth potential of emerging brands with better marketing strategy, outsourced marketing staffing, and best-in-class consumer research. In other words, we're nerds about this stuff. Here we go. Men, welcome to Brand New Blueprint. Thank you very much, Ryan. Looking forward to chatting with you. It is such an honor to to have you uh, for a lot of reasons, and uh, I want to just kind of jump right in because I, I think you have um, just a fascinating story that that I want to start out to hear more about. Um, so, as I understand it, uh, you uh, came to this country as a refugee from Vietnam. Is that right? I did. Yeah, I came here as a teenager um, in 1981. So. I'm part of the the exodus of the boat people. So I had quite an exciting uh, adventure at that age. Wow. As a teenager, Mm -hmm. you and I both are parents of teenagers. And and so it's like, I can have, I have a very kind of clear mental image of how much of an impact something like that would have at, at such a formative stage. Yeah, no, I mean, I look at my kids and, it's hard to imagine them having, you know, the, the, the time, the, the life that I did at that age. Um, it, it's amazing, um, you know, how, how 40 years uh, difference, what a difference that makes. Yeah, yeah. So I know a bit about uh, that history, um, but let's assume that maybe folks in the audience don't actually know much of the history of um, why it is that, uh, so many people from Vietnam and I think Cambodia too made their way here um, on on um, on boats and sort of the context and maybe just a little bit of your of your personal part of that story. Do you mind sharing more? 
Um, yeah, I mean, just a little bit more. I, I think history repeats itself. We're, we're sort of going through that now, yeah. so to speak. Um, you know, my, my family um, left Vietnam um, primarily um, for the same reason many refugees wanted to come to the U.S., um, and that is um, they were impacted by a war that the U.S. engaged in in Vietnam. And um, as liberals and as people who believe in democracies and liberty, um, they, they needed to leave a, a, a socialist communist regime back at the time, or a repressive regime, as you put it, much like the Iraqis and the Afghans today. And um, fortunately, at the time, the United States took in refugees and, um, you know, several hundred thousand um, Vietnamese who supported the American efforts and war um, in Vietnam were able to immigrate here or to escape and were taken in as um, immigrants in the United States. So, um, so we are both, our families is uh, sort of a victim of the war, but also a beneficiary of the immigration um, uh, process uh, that, that got us here. Yes. And d where did you arrive? Did, did you, uh, what, what was the, the, uh, the port of port of entry, as they say? Right, right. So um, it was a multi-step, again, very similar. You know, we had to leave Vietnam to go to a third country. Uh, in this case, we went from Vietnam to Malaysia, um, very similar to all the people who left Turkey to go to Greece. Mm -hmm. And then we stay in a refugee camp probably similar to what Lesbos has been, um, you know, the camp for a lot of um, Middle Eastern um, refugees. And then from there, the United Nations um, processed us to come to the United States. And at the time, um, there were other options, including Canada and Europe, that we could have migrated to. Um, but we chose the, to come to the U.S. because we had families and relatives here. Um, um, so. Uh, the point of entry for me was San Francisco, okay. which is where I am now in the Bay Area. Yes, yes. Um, it's it's a there's a lot of powerful parts of that story, uh, but one of them is that, and something that I hadn't really considered until you told the story just now, that you actively chose the the United States. Like that was not a passive thing. You didn't get assigned to the U.S., you said that is where we want to be, or yeah, your family right. said that. That's right. You know, um, it was to us the best place to immigrate to, and we were fortunate that um, the United States wanted us at the time. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think uh, that part of your story that 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 time in your life impacted who you've become now or or what you've gone on to do i mean that that's a really sort of big question that probably can't be tackled <laughs> easily uh so i kind of apologize for it even as i'm saying it and yet i i wonder at like if, if you thought about how it shaped you in any way i i think you and i need to have a beer to go over that <laughs> Or maybe a long meal. <laughs> but I'll give you a brief answer. I think, I think when you go through an experience like that, it really informs who you are as an individual. Um, 
And, you know, it's, it's part of my life and it's something that I value the experience itself. Um, and, um, you know, it reflects in sort of our current work at Hodo where we work with a lot of immigrants, um, you know, the essential workers of America today, similar to the essential workers when my parents came with me, um, you know, just need work and need to be taken care of. And so um, I, I look at all the immigrants and, you know, the people of color that we employ today. And I, I see my, my, my mom, my dad, my aunt, my uncles, me, you know, as a, right. as a early 20 uh, immigrant. So um, it allows me to have a lot of empathy for immigrants uh, in the United States uh, and try to create opportunities for them to, to grow and, and be, be active contributors to this country. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. And that's a, that's a great segue because, uh, you know, fast forward many years, you, after, after arriving and, and growing up and you had a career, you wound up starting this amazing food company. But I wonder like, what was the, talk us through what, what were the steps that led to, to you, uh, founding Hodo? I think, um, you know, when, when you survive war and escape and be an immigrant, um, you see a lot, right? But then coming to the United States, um, there, are, there were a lot of opportunities given to me as well. And, and it allows me to see this country um, as a place of reinvention. Mm. It allows me to see this country as a place where you can take risks, um, professionally, that is. And um, so it, it's really a great place for that. And, um, you know, w- once you get here and y- there's no fear, right? You, you have sort of escaped death. <laughs> right. And uh, it's all rosy if you want to sort of put the work into it and, um, you know, having the opportunity um, and, and basically being able to fight against whatever discriminations um, to sort of speak your speak your mind, speak your voice. Um, so that's what I've done, and um, and I think it allows me to reinvent myself several times. And uh, one of the reinvention is Hodo, um, the current business. And at the time, um, I just spent probably ninety percent of my credit card bills on food, so I thought food was uh, an interesting option. Um, because it's more recession proof and I have a passion for food. And so I just decided to, um, to look at, f- at food as an opportunity for career. And, and it was a fascinating time when I started Hodo because in the Bay area, um, which is one of the epicenters of uh, food innovation at the time, it was uh, the beginning of the likes of Scharfenberger chocolate. Mm-hmm. It's the beginning of the likes of Cowgirl Creamery. Um, you know, we have Acme Bread. We have Strauss Creamery. We have, you know, I, I launched my business at the same time as um, the Artisan Coffee. You know, the first wave of the, the breweries and the coffees. And it's also the first wave of olive organic and artisan olive oil. 
Um, so, so it's a really fascinating time to launch another organic artisan brand that happens to be plant-based and tofu. So the timing was really good at the time um, to do that. Um, and then from a distribution standpoint, the timing was also really good because it was the beginning of the proliferation of farmer's markets. And, um, you know, it's a great way for us to introduce our products. You know, when I first started, we had about a dozen farmer's markets in the entire Bay Area per week. And I think three years after I launched Hodo, um, we had 150 farmer's markets wow. in the Bay Area per week. So you saw a tenfold increase of farmer's markets in a very short span of time. And that was a great platform for a lot of uh, startup, food startup to launch their business. And, um, you know, many of my peers, you know, like Blue Bottle launched around the same time. Um, so, so a lot of my peers launched their business, food business at that time. So a confluence of timing of, you know, the right distribution network through the farmer's markets, interest in eating local, organic. Um, so it's a really fun time to start a food business. I am just floored by the idea that that many of some of the most exceptional artisan brands in the country, certainly um, on the West Coast, but I think many of those brands, including yours, have gone on to um, to assert themselves nationally beyond sort of like just their local distribution. It is it is crazy to consider that so many of them started in that same sort of window. It's like the fertile crescent of, uh, of artisanal food innovation. Yeah. We call it the OG. Yeah. The first wave. yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there have been waves after ours, but I think, um, but I think it's gotten a little bit more challenging now um, because of so many sort of factors, um, both on the retail side, CPG distribution side, mm -hmm. as well as, um, I, I don't think the platforms or the distribution networks, whether it's farmers markets or retail, um, I don't think the opportunities are as robust today um, as they were when we launched. Right, right. And so that's the part where you're saying it was a bit of um, um, timing, the accident right. of timing on your part. Absolutely. You know, I think so much of what we do, it's a function of a planning, but also a function of timing. So including today, right? You know, there's our success is um, just being ready for the plant-based revolution that's happening. Right. And that's a function of timing. Right. Right. Because I would imagine that back when you were um, at the farmer's market, at your farmer's market stand, you weren't talking about this, you know, making plant-based protein like <laughs> right. right like you had a complete there was a completely different way of talking about what tofu is you know then versus how that's it's right. talked about today that's right you know the the, the lexicon of plant-based didn't exist yeah right in fact i mean we call it that but what the hell does it even mean <laughs> <laughs> right we, we don't need to define it but what's the difference between plant-based and vegetarian i don't yeah. know so, um, but it's a category that's defined very much by the grocery industry. Right. You differentiate veganism and vegetarianism, but, you know, it's, it's basically eating plants. Yeah. 
And so uh, you're, you, you launch at a time where some of the most iconic craft-centered artisanal food brands also launched. Blue Bottle, Scharfenberger, Acme, Cowgirl Creamery. And they all have something in common in addition to just producing amazing food. Um, I think they also were um, kind of old school in the way they built those businesses. Like as I remember it, and you are going to be able to speak to this more accurately than me, but I as a consumer and a little bit like as someone who was observing the industry at the time, kind of knew at the time that I wanted to do that at some point um, in my career. I don't remember there that being a you know the heyday of supercharged venture venture capital investment and you know ten or twenty times multiple <laughs> exits and you know no no profitability at exit. I don't that, that's not how I remember that time. Certainly the dot com boom that right. was happening at the same time looked like that, but I don't remember the food business looking like that. So is it fair to say that you and that cadre of entrepreneurs? had a bit more of a like old school fundamentals way of building those businesses? I think that's a really good observation. You know, certainly like RX bar really set the bar <laughs> in, in so many ways in, in terms of valuation, you know, um, but, but I think, you know, coming from finance and, and consulting, um, even, I, I, it never occurred to me to start a business to exit. Mm. Which is, a, which is very different from a lot of food startups today, mm-hmm. right? Um, there, there are many reasons because uh, Silicon Valley has really come into food over the past decade. And that really is a very different landscape than, you know, 15 years ago when we launched um, along with our, our compadres. Um, the idea was really just to make really high quality, great ingredients, tasty artisan products and sort of see who cares about it and who's willing to pay for it um, to, to keep it sustainable. So I think that was more the ethos at the time is sustainability, is taste, is ingredient driven and is regional markets. So, you know, Absolutely. I wasn't planning to build a national brand. You know, I was, I just wanted to make delicious food um, mm. and, and get it to the restaurants and to the consumers in the Bay area and maybe in California and the West coast. Um, so the fact that we, we've been patient and the fact that we really didn't take VC money uh, until last year, I think played a huge role in terms of our ability to be a national brand in our own terms. Wow. You just said something that I think bears repeating um, for those in the audience that don't fully appreciate how big of a deal that is. The The company is what, you, around 15 years old. Is that, did yep. I get that right? Mm-hmm. And you just took your first venture capital round last year. Is that what you said? Well, technically it's our series B. Okay. We raised a friend, a friends and family round in 2008 to build our current plant. Wow. And from 2008 until 2019, we didn't raise any money. Wow. I mean, that is, 
that is incredible. Very difficult. I, 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 my sense is that that's um, very difficult in some ways because it requires a level of focus on cash flow and profitability and operations that that is um, that is that cannot be taken lightly. And yet, um, it the amount of value that 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 allows you to create and the level of influence and control that that gives you, I presume, is is can't even it can't, it can't even be compared with a company that had to raise five, six, seven rounds in that same time frame. Yeah, possibly. I, I think. There, there are many ways uh, a business, a food business, can grow. I think it really is a function of um, the founders and the culture and what he or she wants to do, um, as well as what externally um, demands for the products and capitalization. Um, those are big decisions. And I think... Um, on one hand, we, we didn't have those choices as we talked earlier um, about going to a VC and raising money, mm. right? But on the other hand, um, we don't know what would have happened if we were to launch today and having VC um, monies and, and, and being mm. able to access the market today, um, especially given the rise of plant-based food. Right. Right. So, so it's hard to, to imagine or figure what's better I don't think there's necessarily a better path. I think it's really very individual. Um, and um, and I think the, the idea behind it all is to have control, to, to make decisions. Whether it's a right decision or the wrong decision um, almost doesn't matter. It's just the ability to, to make the decision and how to grow a business. Right. I think I want to acknowledge and appreciate how balanced and uh, and and sort of wise that way of framing it is that it that it's less about there being because I think right now there's there is some real debate and discussion about what's the right way to grow and what I'm hearing you say is that the there may not actually be quote a right way to grow so much as there is the right way to to build a business for who you are as an entrepreneur, for what your business dynamics are, for the category that you're participating in. Like there's all these, there's all these considerations. Is that that what you're saying? Yeah. There are many external factors as well as internal and personal factors. And I think, I think the saving grace for us as a company is our ability to pivot. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's really about, the founders and the t- entrepreneurs' ability to to see the market, to react to it, um, and, and to react well to it, and not overreact or underreact. And so, I think that's a saving grace. You know, we've gone through from the time we built um, in two thousand and eight. That was a recession, right? Um, and um, you know, we've we've seen up up cycle and down cycles. And um, and you're right. There are times. There were times that were super stressful from a cash flow and capitalization standpoint. And then there are other times when we we could have grown a lot faster, and we didn't because we didn't go out there and get money. Mm-hmm. So, but we're able to sort of maintain some type of a balance um, until, and, and we still do that today, right? Just because we went out to get money. Um, at, at this particular time, because we see opportunity to to build 
a little faster. And that's the main driver um, for us to, to go out and get our round B. Yes. One thing I'm, I, I'd love to get a better understanding of is, um, so you started out, it sounds like, farmers markets, regional uh, access, uh, restaurants, and then at some point, which feels very, uh, to your point, like you can kind of get your arms around it um, in terms of sort of the size and the scale. And then at some point, I think what I read is that you picked, you landed Chipotle as an, as a customer, which must, I presume have been an inflection point in the volume you were doing, the, the level of national reach. Is that true? Or, or maybe that wasn't quite the, the, um, inflection point that it seems like it would be from the outside looking in. No, it was. Chipotle was an inflection point because with Chipotle, it was the first time that the Hodo brand went national. Mm. So it wasn't even a retail national. It's a food service national. Right. But to your point, I think that um, we were out to build a food business with flavors, taste, and integrity of ingredients. And we wanted to see, we wanted people to associate our brand with that type, with, with those words. And Chipotle, one of the reasons that we worked with Chipotle was because they recognized the quality, the innovation. Um, it, it really met with their, um, and, and to this date, the yeah. food with integrity ethos. Yeah. So, so the, the founding team of Chipotle at the time um, and us worked together um, over the course of one year to launch nationally. And um, I mean, you can still go on their website. I mean, we're branded. You know, Chipotle doesn't brand anything um, on in their stores, but uh, on their social media and marketing. We we were likened to the the Nyman Ranch branding that Chipotle had mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason they did that was because. Um, in, in the Bay Area at the time, all the restaurants that were using our products was already branding us similar to Nyman, similar to Cowgirl Creameries, cheeses, mm-hmm. you know, and, and whatever produce and, and farmers they source from. So that evolution of branding the source that started here with Nyman and locally continued into Chipotle. So it, it was an opportunity not just to build our capacity, but also to build our brand nationally. Mm-hmm. It's one of those. It, it's one of those things that um, is a testament to the enduring value of investing in quality and building a brand that actually stands for something. So that when um, when the brand scales. Like if you've built it from day one, from account one, to have to, to deeply stand for quality, deeply stand for for authenticity, deeply stand for artisanal um, kind of curation, almost. Once you scale, you that that benefit, that value that you've created, that you've embedded into the DNA of the brand, ideally scales with it. But it's very hard to go the other way around. It's very hard to sort of like build a brand fast and not 
um, uh, well, speed is maybe less critical. It's very hard to to not embed that level of commitment to quality and care and and craftsmanship into a brand. If you haven't done it early, it's hard to reverse engineer that after you've scaled. Like the, the moment when you have to invest in that, it seems to me, is when the brand is young. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether um, that's necessarily the the right path, but yeah. I think you're right in that. If you go out into the food world in the grocery stores and you pick up a product for the first time, um, and and if if that product is delicious, great ingredients, organic, etc., and you know takes good care of its people, all that stuff, um, and it just launched last week, that's fantastic, right? But if, if you pick up something that you think it's a great brand. Um, but it doesn't support itself with taste, with all all the important things that you value. Um, then it's a one and done, mm-hmm. right? So for us, um, it was always important to build repeat customers, right? At the farmers markets, in the grocery stores, um, at the restaurants, right? Because uh, whether you're CPG or in food service, so much of what we do depends on repeat customer and repeat customers to get them depends on their goodwill. So for us to build deep partnerships and having the goodwill with these customers, retail customers and food service customer, it's important. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what we've tried to do and continue to do is to be building these relationships, partnerships um, with our customers. Absolutely. And and clearly, um, clearly that has paid off. Um, and I, I want to change gears and talk about uh, uh, something you mentioned earlier, and 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 kind of get more into it. You talked about uh, one of the saving graces of of the business is is your ability to pivot. And mm-hmm. um, I, I one thing that's you know top of mind for everyone right now is is uh, the impact of of COVID nineteen on the food industry on food service in particular, but the whole food ecosystem has been impacted either positively or negatively uh, by the pandemic and the the economic fallout from that. I wonder if you could talk about uh, what has the impact or what have the impacts been for Hodo and what are some examples of the ways that you've had to adjust uh, to, to get through it? Sure. I think there are some, commonality in terms of companies like us um, who basically who straddle with food service and retail um, mm-hmm. it allows us a little bit of flexibility in that um, the demand of retail during COVID has gone up right whereas the demand for food service that we supply whether they're the commissaries in Silicon Valley whether they're Chipotle um, you know, Michelin star restaurants, um, that has reduced. Um, so uh, very quickly, early on in April, I mean, it happened overnight, you know, when you have sheltering in place and, um, and panic buying at the grocery stores. So fortunately for us, because we, we were pretty balanced, you know, we, we, just, we just basically pivoted very quickly to, to take whatever, food service drop and turn it into retail. And, and that trend 
exists today. So our retail growth uh, has basically taken up all the food service drop mm. and, um, and, and the ability to put in place um, the people to make that switch. It's really a function operationally of cross-training, which we've always done. People work in different departments. Um, it's a function of, you know, like if you talk to our employees, they know safety, their safety is number one. So when pivot hits to remind them, you know, with the PPE stuff, it's also relatively straightforward. Um, so we have an ethos at the company that your safety is number one and food safety is right after that. So having these uh, ethos in place really helped us pivot very quickly. And, um, and I don't know what the future holds, but I think we were fortunate to be able to pivot in such a way because we have national reach and our products were in high demand. Um, it was probably more challenging for strict CPG companies that do not have national distribution because um, nationally, they were not taking on new customers, right? The distributors and the grocery stores, they just want to continue to sell what they currently have on the shelf because it was flying off the shelf. So if we were only a regional player, we probably would have been in some trouble when, say, the, the food service um, dries up. But fortunately, we were a national brand and, you know, every single um, distri distributors and, and retailers wanted more of our products. Uh, and especially the online, you know, um, grocers, the good eggs of the world, the um, imperfect, the fresh directs. Um, there were a lot of opportunity, Instacarts, um, in that direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And would you, were there ways in addition to the fact that you already had built a, a corporate culture around safety and that you had kind of a balanced portfolio uh, of, of retail versus uh, food service, was there anything else that you think was true about uh, your kind of old school approach to building the business that turned out to be a benefit at a time like this, like things around like cash reserves or um, I don't know, like were, were there other intangibles like that where you kind of look back and it's like, Oh gosh, I'm glad we, we built the business this way because that turned out to be really helpful. I think we're just beginning to see now, yeah. but I think the, the surprise in a way is um, I think people are appreciating more the quality of our product, the, the, the convenience and the flexibility to use at home, mm. right? You know, it's super easy to use the Moroccan cubes or the curry nuggets. And we've been talking about it for years. Mm. You know, when we build products, we want it to be tasty, first and foremost. We want it to be easy convenience and we want to be economical and i think we see it so much more clearly today right <clears throat> more customers wanted to get recipes more customers are emailing us um, about ingredients 
Um, so it's really, it's really a, a, an amazing time to real to, to, for consumers who cook at home more, who want to eat healthier, who care about the environment to actually see our product meeting those needs. You know, especially, I think the first time this revealed itself to me was I, I think a few months ago when COVID was really impacting a lot of meat processing plants. Mm, yes. Right. So it's really, it started out with, oh, these meat guys are really not taking care of their people. Yeah. Right. And so people woke up to be like, oh, maybe I should not eat so much meat. Mm-hmm. Or I need to look at a company that takes care of its people, that produce products safely. And um, plant based was right there. I think for the first time in the history of our company, um, the confluent, because of where we are today, with COVID, it's really about health and safety, right? With all the climate change conversations that's happening, fires and floods, with the politics we have today about Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and people of color, mm-hmm. immigration. Mm-hmm. These are things that we always cared about as a company, mm-hmm. right? Right after tastes and convenience and, and whatnot. And suddenly, these factors are driving consumer to care more about our brand and to pick up the product to try. Mm-hmm. So it's just layers and layers of um, important factors that were not necessarily important before coming into play at this particular time that really, um, you know, our brand has always been about, but we don't talk about it as much. We still don't talk about it as much. But it was fantastic to see that these factors are driving trial. You know, these factors are leading consumers to our brand. Mm, mm. And then they're like, oh, you also happen to be that. Right. So that, that would be how I put it. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, to have done all of that for the right reasons and then to have consumers eventually reward that just creates a virtuous cycle that um that is a that is the right situation to be in yeah again it's timing and luck yeah yeah so. yeah um so one thing i'd love to that that you mentioned that i want to circle back to is uh the on the cpg side of the business uh one dilemma that a lot of companies are facing especially earlier stage companies that don't have uh, full distribution nationally uh, is just figuring out how you build a relationship with and reach out to and get connected with uh, with buyers and retailers in a world in which there's not a live trade show like Expo West, in a world in which it's much more difficult to find the retailer that is actually doing a reset and that is actually open to new uh, items right. Uh, because it, it, it's it's hit or miss, you know. Some accounts are full on, like yes, we're going to reset, and other accounts have have throttled back, and it's hard to know. Um, one of the things that I know you participated in is uh, a new virtual platform for connecting retailers with uh, with uh, brands like yours uh, called Spark Change. It, what had been what was your experience like with spark change as like an alternative to the live trade show did you find that to be a useful way to uh fill that gap 
Um, and if so, how? That's a great question. I think, I think because of our DNA of taking risks and trying new things, spark change, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, we just have to try it, mm-hmm. right? It was a way of seeing how we can pivot. And I think so far uh, it's been meaningful because there aren't a lot of ways these days for, for a CPG to really get attention, whether especially buyers, like you said. So SparkChan is a great platform for that, right? It's a good alternative. It's the only choice in a way, but it's a, it's a good choice because buyers go there and CPG brands also are on the same platform. Um, will lead to more sampling, like, hey, I, I saw you and, uh, you know, I want to try your stuff. Um, you know, it's, and, and it's really not just the buyers, but the brokers, right? The brokers will, will see it and they, they know how to get you in front of the buyers. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a great opportunity to do that. Um, I, I think innovation is it's, it's really not stopping. It's just not getting to the decision makers. And so spark change will allow that to happen better um, because, you know, we're going to get out of COVID and the innovation will continue to go into the stores and, and sort of being ready for that through spark change is great um, because there's not that many venues. Yeah. And I take it then from that, that, that your, your, your team is still innovating. Yes. Yes, we have to, you know, we, we have new products that's ready for the spring mm-hmm. and just being ready is part of it because mm-hmm. it will happen. You know, um, the, the grocery stores want innovation because the consumers want innovation. Mm-hmm. And so, so you just have to be ready for it. It's just tough to bring it out at this point right. because the review process is all messed up. Yeah. Um, the reset is, you know, gets getting pushed back. But but we've heard from all the, the grocers that um, they they still look for innovation. Um, so yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, so I want to close out and um, kind of go back to something that you said earlier, uh, which is that the uh, food service part of your business took a real hit, and uh, which of course is because restaurants took took a a substantial hit and that 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 seems to continue to be true um maybe maybe a a little better than it was before and that's actually where i want to kind of um hear your perspective on things i know you can't tell the future uh, Mm. but i also know that you as a as an inherent part of your business and also as a, a core part of your kind of DNA and your network, you're in conversation with a lot of restaurateurs of, of folks in the food industry. I'm sorry, of, of folks in the food service industry. What are you hearing? Like, what, what do you think is, um, is, is going to like, uh, change in, in the food right. service landscape or, or are we going to get out of this or, or, or are we going to see even more difficulty ahead and, and bankruptcies and such? What do you think? Well, I think I think in in the Bay Area or or, or large cities where um, you have a, a, an entire spectrum of restaurants, from you know your mom and pop like takeout to the high end Michelin stars, um, the mom and pops are doing much better mm. for sure, and they can pivot easier. 
the takeout business is going really, really strong. And it's sort of moving up the chain a little bit. So any restaurants that can go from sit down to take out in a meaningful way are, are going to survive. And we've, we've seen that in the Bay Area. Like if, if you have a sub $20 entree and you have a good online order system, you're actually doing really well. You're probably doing 75, 80% of what you normally do. And you actually might make better margins because your, your, your service, you don't have to have service, you know, no, no cleaning, um, no table waiting. Um, it's really bad for the service worker. Right. But from a restaurant standpoint and the economics that, that will be good. That's going to be fine. In fact, some of these restaurants might just never open back up mm -hmm. because they are actually much more sustainable with this model. I think with the higher end restaurants, um, you know, we, uh, we're about to open 25% indoor seatings soon. Um, I think they just need to double their price. I've had several conversations with some of the restaurant tours. You know, I think the model is not new. I think it's happening, say, um, in other countries like Australia, for example, in mm. Melbourne, there's a restaurant that I thought was brilliant. It's a Michelin star restaurant. So when COVID hit, they shut down and they open right back up with 25% seating, but they're going to charge double for this, for the high end. And then they had a totally low end takeout. That's oh, wow. 20 bucks. I think that's a great model. Um, and I think that's a feasible model um, for a lot of the restaurants. Um, and I'm waiting to see if that's going to happen with some of the folks that I've spoken with. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think those who can pivot will survive. Um, and um, those who, who can't, you know, like I was up in Yon Yonville and uh, French Laundry actually has more customers now than they did when they were opening full. Really? Yes. It took it. You know, just like House of Prime Rib just opened in, in San Francisco and you can't get a table. Right. And they probably will charge a higher price. Mm -hmm. So the demand, the high end demand is there. The low end demand is there. Right. In the middle, you have to decide where you're going to go to the high end or to the low end. Or the high end restaurant can play, but the low end restaurant cannot play on the high end. Right. 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 So the, for the high end restaurants, the ability to segment their market and create yes. a lower tier offering that's carry out and, right. uh, uh, and, and then perhaps an even more curated and more refined in dining experience to both justify the increased premium and also, um, kind of work around the fact that they're only at 25% capacity. Those two things taken together plus the economics could actually be a path out of this. Right. And then one other, one other phenomenon that I think it's happening too is um, the meal kits. They're ready to heat, ready to prepare for you. I think some of the restaurants are beginning to pivot into that with the good eggs of the world. Good eggs is already doing it. Imagine if you actually get a kit to cook at home. So as you know, the, the meal kit companies in general have seen an incredible uptake, right? So now 
you know, you're going to see smaller regional players um, that, that are really going to take advantage, advantage of that regionally, like restaurants with brands mm-hmm. that can say, instead of buying, you know, a nationally distributed meal kit, why don't you buy mine through Good Eggs or Instacart? Mm-hmm. So I think there's an opportunity there that I think some of the restaurants are beginning to recognize and, and move into. So it's, it's really fertile uh, place, a fertile place for, for restaurants to pivot if they're able to. I can tell you that if I still lived in the Bay Area and Good Eggs gave me the opportunity to buy a Burma Superstar meal kit, goodbye, hello, fresh, hello, like right. that meal kit. No, like I would literally not think twice about it and I would pay 50% more. That is all the way up my alley. Well, if this stays on this recording, I'll make sure Burma hears it. <laughs> I'm going to keep it in this recording for exactly that reason. Hey, you never know. <laughs> wow. Well, um, I am so glad to uh, – I'm going to have us wrap up there because that's ending on a good note for me. Like to hear I'm a huge fan of uh, of thoughtful – cuisine. That's one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you because you've built your business that way from the beginning. But it's also one of the reasons why I am um, uh, have such a big heart for restaurateurs that uh, really are in this for the craft and for the love of the food and, and invest in that uh, every single day. And and it's wonderful news for me to hear that there's that there are a couple of business model options that can see that vibrant community continue to be part of the food ecosystem when COVID-19 is in the rearview mirror. So um, thank you for giving me a, a, a bit of good news to, to hold on to for the week. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's been a pleasure. And, you know, food is, it's every day, but you have to look at it long term as well. Uh, you know, you, you if you look at food purely as a business, um, you, you forget all the important things about food, like taste and community and people, mm. essential people. Um, so um, it's a path for a lot of people. And uh, if you do it thoughtfully, hopefully you, you have good opportunity to succeed. And we certainly at Hodo, uh, adhere to that. We support that. And, um, you know, we wish everyone good health and good luck. Thank you for listening to Brand New Blueprint. If you want help or additional tools to apply what you learned in this episode, just text the word Blueprint to 66866. This podcast is a production of Smoketown a boutique consultancy that helps emerging brands reach their growth potential. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe to get the latest one. And a big thank you to the regulars for the beats. Beats.